Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Curiosity always serves you well because there's always something that you don't know and it might just be that thing that leads on to the next great adventure. Today I'm talking to Tim Gregory. Tim is an analytical nuclear chemist working at the National Nuclear Laboratory and he's based on the Sellafield site. He's got some amazing experience as a meteorite scientist and he's active in outreach, talking in schools and he's been on the BBC, sharing his passion for space and for science. So Tim lives in Cumbria and in his free time, he lives outside running, hiking, canoeing and doing photography in the wonderful countryside of the Lake District. So welcome, Tim, and lovely to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you for the invitation. So, Tim, you were saying earlier that you grew up in West Yorkshire in Dewsbury. Tell us a bit about family life and what you were like when you were younger. So, growing up, it was it was pretty much always me and my mum and my sister. And we both went to the local school and then on to the local high school. And I don't know, I guess if, the, if there is a thread that strings all the different periods of my life together, it's probably science. And nature. I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in science. Well, I, w- I was always interested in a lot of different things growing up. I-, I remember in primary school, I was interested in pretty much everything. Poetry. I used to write plays and practice them in the playground. I was interested in reading, writing. I was interested in science. I was interested in history, all that different stuff. But you know, as, as, as life goes on, I guess you, your interests get whittled down as you get older. And um, science is really the big one that has followed me throughout, throughout my life. Right. So do you remember sort of time when you were a youngster when the fascination for science and nature, you know, just sort of came about in a particular moment that you can remember? No, I've, I've thought long and hard about this because science, I guess, has really sort of defined my life up to this point. But I can't quite put my finger on a particular event or a moment or, or even a, a particular period of my childhood when, when science really struck me. It's just something that's always been with me. One of my earliest memories was sitting down with a big encyclopedia. And, and it's, I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but when I read that there was such a thing as wild horses, that just absolutely blew me away. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like there are horses just down the street uh, from me, but there is such a thing as wild horses. What else is there out there that, you know, that are just these crazy unexpected things. And um, I think that's, that's still pretty much my approach to science and the natural world. Now there's always something more to know. Yeah. And it's good to be curious about it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so presumably then, as you went into secondary school, you, you did a range of GCSEs and then A-levels what were they? Were they sort of, you know, gravitating as you were whittling down these other subjects into the sciences? Well, so I'll, I'll just take one, one very slight step back and, and say that so through, through primary school, I was sort of interested in lots and lots of different things, particularly science. But 
then when I went to high school, like I quickly learned that being a total science geek doesn't particularly make you that popular. Um, and you know, one of the things that I used to do in primary school was do talks for the class. I used to take in like my you know fossil collection or my rock collection or, and, and do little presentations on like aeroplanes and random things like that. And, and I quickly, quickly learned in high school that that is not what you do in high school unless, unless you want to sort of pin a target on your back and get your head kicked in. So I, I quickly learned sort of to keep that sort of thing under wraps, if you like. And, and, and looking back, that, that five years at high school was, I had some fantastic teachers and I've got lots of fond memories from high school, but, but there was also a large element of lots of my interests were sort of stamped out of me at that point, if you like. I couldn't really share it with people. It, sh- sharing my interests and, and things, that, things that I find important is one of the large motivating factors behind, well, behind lots of things that I do. And, and so not being able to do that, it sort of stamped a lot of it out of me. But after high school, I went to, um, I went to a different school to do my A-levels. I went to a sixth form. And, um, and that was that was fantastic. That was as different again. I'd, I'd sort of met my people, if you like, because it, it was, it was you know, being, being something that you do through choice rather than necessity, A-levels. Um, the, the, the people that I was sort of hanging out with in class and, and in the common room were, were also there because they wanted to be. And so I sort of found my fellow geeks to be, to be nerdy about science again with. And, and so that was a really positive, fantastic time in my life. I remember arriving in sixth form and after a couple of months thinking, oh gosh, thank goodness. <laughs> there are other people who love this sort of thing as much as I do. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that because, you know, we were talking about a, a guy I knew at university who came to university and spent the first term trying to be somebody he wasn't. And after Christmas, he came back in and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to have to be me. If people don't like me for me, then that's going to be fine, you know. Right. <laughs> and, and it's sort of similar to your experience, you know, up, up to GCSEs, you were having to try and be somebody you weren't or, or, or hide the person that you really are. Um, and I can imagine the release and the relief, you know, moving on to college to do your A-levels and actually. Yeah, sure. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I did have some good friends in high school and I have lots of fond memories, but particularly so some of my fondest memories in, in high school were nothing to do with science. It was actually all about music. It was, it was during high school that I started playing guitar and I was in loads of bands and school productions throughout high school. And that, that, was, that was a very positive um, aspect of, of, of high school time. But science was certainly not something that I sort of openly talked about that much. Or at least I don't think I did. Maybe my friends from the time would disagree. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't, you know, in, indulge it in a way that I could in sixth form. Okay, so so you, you, you're in college, you, you, you've done your A-levels, you're finding your passion and you're, you're able to sort of be yourself, hopefully not forgetting about your music and performing as well. Oh, definitely not. The music's still with me. <laughs> Very good. Um, so then you decide to go to Manchester uh, to do uh, geology with planetary science, which sounds a fantastic programme. There was a slight complication between my A-levels and my undergraduate degree. One, one of the things that, that my sixth form and, and I think many, many sixth forms and, and colleges and universities do is give the impression that, that transitioning from A-levels to an undergraduate degree is a, a seamless transition. 
you've got it all figured out because you're 17, right? And you've got your whole life figured out when you're 17. Every 17-year-old knows exactly what they're going to do between finishing those final year A-level exams and retirement, right? It's easy. You've, you've got it all figured out when you're 17, right? Well, no. <laughs> In fact, barely anybody does, and I was no exception. And so during my A-levels, well, first of all, I did, I did A-level maths, physics, chemistry, and geology. And after the first year, I dropped chemistry and, and took the three forward geology, maths, and physics. And when, I, when it came to applying to university, it was a real sort of toss-up for me between more of a physics route and more of a geology route, because I absolutely loved both of them. I absolutely loved A-level physics. It was, it was one of the best things that I've ever done. I used, to, I used to like run to that class. I just loved it so much. And, and it was a bit of a, do I go down the more geology route or the physics route? And, and in the end, I, I chose the physics route. Now, another one of my longstanding interests is space, as it is with a lot of people. And so I chose to do physics with astrophysics at the University of Manchester. So I applied, I got, I got my offer, I sort of <laughs> worked, worked hard to get my, my grades and got the place and arrived in Manchester thinking, great, I'm going to do a physics with astrophysics degree. And um, by about eight weeks in, I sort of realized, uh, this isn't quite for me. It's not quite what I thought it would be. Um, and I'm kind of missing all the geology type stuff as well. Not that I didn't love physics, but I didn't love it enough to make the what is, well, what, what is often, frankly, the misery of doing an undergraduate degree, because it's very difficult being a student, um, worth it. And so I, I had quite a period of some honest reflection with myself and thought, I'm good, I can bury my head in the sand here, but it's going to engulf me eventually if I don't do something about it. And so I went and spoke to my tutor and they got me an appointment with a professor over in the earth science department because there was this course geology with planetary science. And I thought, well, maybe if I can, you know, drop out and then come back next year and, and do this, I could, I could do the geology, but I'd still have one foot in the world of space. And, and I went to see them. And as it happened, there was still a few days left where I could switch course rather than drop out and take a year out completely and so I think this this was on the Friday and they said you you basically have to decide over the weekend and either turn up on Monday morning in your physics class or your sedimentary petrology class and and as it happened I I turned up in my sedimentary petrology class and never looked back and so I ended up doing a four-year degree in geology with planetary science but the beauty of it was is that during my degree, some of the modules were actually over in the School of Physics with the physics undergraduates. And so I still got to, you know, do my partial differentials and my matrix algebra and all that sort of stuff. But I still got to study my beloved rocks and minerals. <laughs> and so it, it, it certainly wasn't planned. It was, it was, it was a large, a large, a large arbitrariness, if you like. It was just chance. Nowhere else in the country does geology with planetary science. And so if I'd have chosen to do physics elsewhere, I wouldn't have taken the path that I did. It's really interesting. And, and what a brave thing as well, partly to sort of recognise in yourself that you weren't in, in the right place for you. Secondly, to talk to somebody about it. Uh, and thirdly, to make a decision to, to switch. And it's interesting because the number of people 
I chat to who have found themselves in a place that just doesn't feel right. And often you can't quite put your finger on it, but you recognize the feeling and then talk to somebody about it. And that can open up other options and then yes. the decision to do something. Well, one thing that I've learned, and I guess, I guess I knew it at the time, but I hadn't articulated it is that problems don't get better by themselves. Most of the time the a, a leaky roof will just get worse they very rarely fix themselves. And so go, go and tackle them head on. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's right. That's right. That's good advice. Um, so, so then you were in, in this sort of four-year degree. Did you, did you um, respond really positively to the move? Did it feel like you were in the right place? How do you think you changed during that time? It, it was definitely the right thing. And it, it felt right pretty much immediately, actually. I just sort of Although it was still difficult, you know, undergraduate degrees, there's this perception that your, your days as an undergraduate are the best days of your life. And, and I remember thinking lots during my time as an undergraduate. I hope that's not true because, because this is pretty miserable at times. You know, you, you sort of, you're still trying to figure out how to live away from home. You, you're generally quite malnourished because you haven't quite got meal planning sorted yet you've got all this work to do and you want to do well and of course you're paying to be there and so you don't want to mess it up um it was it was it was difficult but actually it was a really good four years yeah yeah no that's really and, and part of it you were telling me you had an intern in nasa in houston in texas coming to the end of my second year and and i had this big summer project lined up for my which would become my third year dissertation, which was independent mapping, where me and my mapping partner went out to a remote region of Northeast Spain and geologically mapped a large area of the, the foothills of the Pyrenees. That was our third year project. But the summer after that, so the summer before my final year, I had nothing lined up and I thought, well, I had a part-time job in the hospital during my degree. And I thought, well, you know, I could spend it wouldn't be a bad use of time working in the hospital through the summer. It's, it's what I did in the holidays and on the weekend. I thought, you know, I'd, I'd quite like some work experience because I'm not exactly sure what I want to do after my degree, but I know that I'm sort of interested in more of the space side of geology, which surprisingly actually exists. We tend to think of geology as a subject where you're sort of out in the field, in the mud, and looking, looking into the Earth's interior, which is true, but you can also train a geological eye to the sky and study things like asteroids and planetary surfaces and meteorites, which is what I happened upon. And, and so I, I spent some time Googling, actually, um, planetary science, internship, planetary work experience. And, and there were a few little opportunities that were there. Not many, but, but there were a, a small handful. And so I applied to a couple. And one of the ones that I applied to was an internship that lasted for two and a half months in, in Houston, Texas, at the Johnson Space Center. And I thought wow, that would be really cool, <laughs> to put it lightly. You know, I mean, no explanation needed. It's, it's the Johnson Space Center. It's the home of human spaceflight. It's absolutely historic, and it's still on the cutting edge of space science now. And I thought, well, I probably won't get it, but if I don't apply, there's a 0% chance I'll get it. But if I do apply, you know, there might be like a 1 in 10,000 chance I'll get it, and 1 in 10,000 is way more than zero. And so I, I applied for it. it. It took quite a long time to apply. I remember 
using the career service at the university quite a lot, I wrote this personal statement in a CV. And it was really the first time that I'd ever like sat down and done something like that. And so I took it to the career service. They checked it and gave it back to me the next day with red pen scribbled all over it. And I thought, ouch, like, I, I thought that was a really good effort. I thought I'd done a good job, but wow, you, 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 you sure showed me. And so I went and made all the necessary changes and took it back. And then the next time it came back, it had a little bit less red pen on it. And then did it again and again and again until eventually they said, Tib, it's as good as it's ever going to be. Just get the thing sent. And so I sent it and I, I ended up getting it. And I still can't quite believe that I got onto this internship. And it, it's been seven years now and I still can't quite believe that it happened. So off I went for the summer to Houston, Texas. It was the first time that I'd ever left Europe. It was the first time I'd ever been abroad on my own, which was quite scary and um, landed in Houston, Texas and did 10 weeks at the Johnson Space Center studying meteorites, which if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't really know anything about when I arrived. If, if, if I'm being perfectly honest, I look back at my notes that I made during that, those first you know, week or two of my internship and I think, gosh, like, this is real meteorite 101 sort of thing. You really didn't know anything. <laughs> but um, but that's the point of work experience, right? You don't always know these things. And I spent 10 weeks researching a meteorite that was discovered in Antarctica in 1994, which sounds dry, but actually meteorites, man, you, you look at those things through the lens of, of science and analytical science, and they become worlds in themselves on the microscopic scale. They are amazing objects. And so that really gave me the bug for meteorite science. I know myself as a, a material scientist, you know, the sort of microstructures in meteorites and the time it's taken and the slow cooling and all the rest of it. You can't regenerate those microstructures in our lifetimes on Earth, can you? So they're absolutely unique. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, those things are literally otherworldly. And you've written a book about them as well. Yes, I did. So I, I got the bug for meteorites during my internship and then... And then it was time to go back to Manchester for my fourth and final year. And I chose predictably to do a project on meteorites. It was a, a very thin slither of meteorite that was found in Antarctica again in 2011. And um, I spent the year looking at that under a scanning electron microscope and an electron probe, both of which I knew the fundamental physics of how they worked, but I'd never actually used them before. And so that's why I chose that project. I thought, you know, these tools are the bread and butter of of meteorite science and many other areas of science. And so I should maybe think about doing something that would enable me to learn how to use them. And so that's what I ended up doing. And, and I loved it so much that then I ended up doing a PhD in meteorite science down at the University of Bristol. And it was, it was during, it, it really all started with that internship, but it was during my master's project and my PhD and my postdoc that I really, I was, I was, I wouldn't say obsessed or maybe, I don't know. I was, absolutely gripped by these things you know when something just takes you and you can't quite articulate why I, I really found that with meteorites and I just read everything that I could get my hands on and this gave me this big knowledge base of all the different major areas of meteorite science and when things were done and who by and under what circumstances and all of the technical details of it and and I just thought I've got to share this with people because it's just the most wonderful world that I've ever sort of come across and that's what motivated me to write my book which is quite predictably called meteorite <laughs> well at least they know what it's about when they pick it up 
<laughs> but it's interesting that because your your passion for that it's more than just curiosity it's 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 there's an emotional dimension to your science and your passion for these sorts of things isn't it it's not just like an intellectual i need to know the answer to this question in a cold dry way but there's a, there's a passion and an energy that it gives you one of the things that i love the most about science and and this is true for all areas of science but I feel it the most with meteorite science because I know the most about it. But it's like a, a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and it reflects the best parts of us or some of the best parts of us back to ourselves. Science is this enormous collaborative enterprise that spanned centuries now and spanned the world. And the things that we have discovered using the tools of science are just beyond belief the world is even stranger and more wonderful than anybody could ever have guessed and science gives us an excuse to be our best possible selves because you know it requires a lot of commitment and dedication and 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 study and intellectualism and teamwork and creativity writing skills mathematical skills computer skills engineering all of these threads feed into science to produce the, the, well, not just the knowledge and the interesting facts, but, but our modern civilization and the comforts that we all enjoy in the 21st century. And so, you know, science really gives us an excuse to be the best versions of ourselves. And I, and I just love that. And meteorite science is no exception of that. And, and, and so it was really the you know, that the science is interesting, but it's also the people who did the science and under what circumstances and what motivated them. There's, there's quite a lot of that in meteorite too, which you often don't get in the scientific literature. The scientific literature is very to the point and sharp. Whereas with, with a book, I had a hundred thousand words to play with. And so I could delve more into the people that did it and what motivated them. And um, it was just, it was just wonderful. And it's true for all areas of science. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said there about the creativity side, because sometimes I think that we separate out the scientific from the artistic too much. And when you get to the leading edge of science, it is it is a creative process and you need those artistic skills to think imaginatively around hypotheses and how am I going to test this? And it's a creative process, isn't it? Yes, I, I completely agree. I, I strongly dislike how the arts and the sciences are often pitched against each other in, in mainstream conversation. They, they needn't be. They, they, they try to answer very similar questions, but from different perspectives, which, which is actually way more useful than just relying on one exclusively. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, you, you're clearly a, a great communicator with a lot of passion, and that seems to have you know, got you involved in some stuff with the BBC, both TV and radio and that sort of thing. How did that happen? And how did you sort of take a deep breath and jump into that pool? <laughs> well, during my undergraduate degree, I started volunteering at the Manchester Museum on a weekend. I'd stand with, you know, with, with a, a friend of mine and we'd, we'd stand with a table of rocks and, and, and show them to passers-by, which I don't know, like, it was a really great way to spend a Saturday morning actually it was really great some of the conversations and 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 it was during that period that I discovered that I sort of have a knack for for hanging quite you know some of these concepts are quite 
intellectual and scholarly for, for hanging these ideas on a hook that, that people can understand. And, and I think that that stems from, it's something that I do for myself because I don't naturally just understand things at first glance. I have to reframe them in my own terms and then sort of speak them back to myself. And, and it was during that time that I learned how to do that with other people. And then when I went to Bristol to do my PhD, I used to go into schools and teach geology days. We used to put together geological timelines and all that sort of stuff. And I sort of discovered I've got a knack for speaking in front of audiences, albeit, you know, young kids, but actually I, I, in retrospect, they're some of the most difficult audiences to speak in front of. And I started going into local scout groups and local organizations to do talks. And, oh, this is, you know, something that I enjoy. It's something that people seem to enjoy. And, and meanwhile, I, I saw an advert on the internet for a new BBC Two documentary slash reality TV show called Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? Where you could apply to be an astronaut and go through the rigor of astronaut selection. And, and I thought, oh, that sounds cool. I've always wanted to go to space. And I'm kind of into like outdoor stuff. That's kind of like astronauts-ish. And so I applied for this program about astronauts and again I thought there's no way I'm going to get this but if I don't apply I definitely won't get it so I should just apply anyway and I ended up making it onto this program bizarrely in the middle of my PhD this astronaut training program this astronaut selection program and um, they chose 12 of us to be part of it and there were people from all walks there were surgeons there was there were a few pilots one of them was an RAF pilot there were a few professors engineers and then there was me, a young, you know, wide-eyed, naive PhD student, <laughs> sort of rocked up on day one and thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? I'm going to be put through astronaut selection. And it's going to be televised. And it's under the watchful eye of people who actually select astronauts in real life, including Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield, who was, who was somewhat of a hero of mine from his time in space. And um, again, that's another one of those things that I can't quite believe happened. I, and, and again, I still can't quite believe it, but I made it through to the final of that program. And um, we, we, we got put through the mill. There was um, underwater diving tests, memory tests, psychological interviews, fitness tests. I got put in a centrifuge and spun around at four and a half G for 10 minutes. Um, zero G flight simulations, all the astronaut stuff, which was just honestly, like the, the most incredible experience of my life. And I, I managed to make it through to the final and came joint runner up with an RAF pilot. And it was a physics professor who came first. And so I'll take that any day of the week. To be honest, I was just grateful to be part of the 12 who made it through to the, to the program, to be honest. So to make it through to the final, that's absolutely fine with me. And it was, it was during the time that astronauts was on television that I was getting invitations to go and speak at lots of places and speak on podcasts and do interviews and 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 as part of the publicity for astronauts I did quite a bit of in radio interview as well and it was it was through that that I just by chance happened to get talking to a producer after after the interview and they said oh would you come on maybe next week there's a meteor shower and we need someone to come and talk about it so I said yeah I'll come and talk about it I've never really done any radio before but I can come and talk and, and it, was, it was just through that sheer chance of getting on the astronaut program that I made these contacts in the, the sort of the faceless media world um, and, and sort of honed my skills on the radio. And, and again, just 
largely through chance, although with a lot of hard work thrown in with it, I managed to present segments on the sky at night as well, which was something, you know, it's like it's one of the longest running documentaries in the world. It's, it's a historic program. So to be, to be on that twice talking about meteorites and my research and the research that was being done in my lab and was, was just the most, I, gratitude is the overwhelming feeling. I felt so grateful to be able to do that. And it was so wonderful to share such a fantastic subject with people. And, and I guess it was on, it was during that time that I thought I really ought to write a book about this as well. And, and again, again, like I, again, like I started writing meteorites. I remember sitting down and thinking, I'm going to write a book. I don't know if, I, if I've got a book in me, but I'm going to at least give it a go. And I wrote the first three chapters and sent it off to a couple of publishers. And one of them came back to me and said, oh yeah, we'd, we'd like to publish this. And then the rest is history. It's now published. And, and, and it was, it was, it was a real combination of, of luck and hard work. I, you know, one of the bitter lessons in life is that hard work doesn't always lead to success. Um, it's, it's just a, a very sad fact of life. But, but never working hard will, will never lead to success. And so you, you've sort of got to, you know, opportunities rarely come looking for you. You have to go out and look for them. And for every, for every opportunity that, that you, you manage to get your hands on, you, there'll be 10 rejections that, and things just slip out of your fingers from time to time. But, but by, by not, you know, by, by not trying to strive towards whatever it is that you're aiming for, you're, you're, you're definitely not going to do it. So you might as well try. It's, it's, be, it's better, better, better than not trying. And so it was really through that that all this media stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, you know, a lot, a lot of what you've talked about has, has been as a result of initiative that you've taken uh, albeit with a low probability of success, you know, your time in NASA, you're uh, going to university, but changing, you know, taking initiative to change what you were studying uh, from physics in, into the geology sort of side of things. Uh, and, and then this as well, applying to go on, on that show, there's been initiative, then there's been the hard work um, uh, and the follow through, you know. So I'm going to take you forward now to what you're doing now, because you are now having given up your chemistry A-level, an analytical nuclear chemist working at the National Nuclear Laboratory. You're not on the International Space Station. You're not working in NASA. You're not looking at meteorites now. You're looking at analytical nuclear chemistry. So why is the obvious question? <laughs> The particular aspect of meteorite science that I became an expert in and, and that I did my PhD in was, was analytical cosmochemistry. And so that involves taking meteorites apart on the micrometer scale all the way down to the nanometer scale. And, and in fact, in, in my case, using mass spectrometry, which takes things apart on the atomic scale. Specifically, I was measuring the isotope composition of meteorites to measure how old they were. Incidentally, they're the oldest objects that we know of. They're, they're four and a half billion years old, which is a very large number. And in fact, meteorites define the edge of the solar system. Anyhow, during the course of my master's project and my PhD and my postdoc, I gained thousands of hours of experience on some quite high-end analytical equipment. And I remember the first day that I walked into the lab and saw the mass spectrometer. I thought, oh my goodness me, <laughs> what have I done? they're going to realize that they hired the wrong guy to do this because I have no idea what that thing does. I didn't even know how to switch it on. But, but after three and a half years of, of 
graft in the PhD, I sort of became okay at running the mass spectrometer and, um, and a couple of other instruments to complement it. And, and it was during that period that I became super interested in, well, I was interested in the science, but also the analysis side of it. That's a whole world in itself, analytical science, you know, ex exactly how do you take something apart, whether it be a meteorite or a piece of nuclear fuel on the atomic scale and measure exactly what it's made of to ultra high precision and be able to believe your data. It, it's, it's a very difficult um, and subtle art, analytical chemistry. And um, I absolutely fell in love with it during my PhD. And so as time went on, it's not that it became less about the meteorites, but it became more about the analysis that grew alongside it. And, and so it was coming to the end of my postdoc position after my PhD. And I thought, you know, I love the meteorite science. It's, it's, it's my entire world. And I love the analysis. It's just, it gets me out of bed in the morning and I love being in the lab. But I'm not sure if the academic lifestyle is for me. There's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of job insecurity. I thought, I really want to go somewhere where I can put roots down and contribute to something over years, decades, because I, I loved arriving in a new lab and then adding value to it and, and learning how that lab works and, and being part of developing new capabilities and different types of analyses but then it's always heartbreaking having to leave and I thought oh, I don't know if I can do this anymore and so I thought I'm not going to get a job in the meteorite industry because it doesn't exist and so maybe I can get a job that involves mass spectrometry or high-end analysis of interesting materials and so I did what anybody looking for a job does and went on indeed.com <laughs> and 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 Honestly, just, just spent a couple of days looking around and bookmarking different job openings that sounded like something that I might be able to be good at and I might enjoy. And then I came across this one, a place called the National Nuclear Laboratory. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, you know, nuclear stuff, that, that sort of, I guess that involves uranium. And I've measured uranium isotopes before in meteorites. You know, how, how different can a piece of nuclear fuel be to a meteorite? Because... I guess fundamentally uranium doesn't care what it's sat in. It's going to do what uranium does regardless. So I thought maybe I could do this job. And so I, I made a few inquiries, read the description, thought about it, put an application in and, and, and here I am. And so while on the face of it, I've moved from being a meteorite scientist to a nuclear scientist, it, it sounds like a complete career change. It's more of a sideways step, to be honest, because as it happens, the instrument that I spent my PhD using and my postdoc which is called a, a multi-collector inductively coupled mass spectrometer is exactly the same instrument that I use every day as part of my job now. It is identical. And, and my suspicion was exactly correct. Uranium doesn't care whether it's in a meteorite or a piece of nuclear fuel. Um, uranium does what uranium does regardless. And so very strange, you know, one of the things they asked me in my interview, which is a perfectly reasonable question is why on earth is a meteorite scientist applying to be part of a nuclear laboratory? And, and it turns out that the, the tools of science that we use to analyze meteorites are essentially identical to the tools of science that we use to analyze nuclear materials. And so it was a real sort of perfect sideways step for me. And if I'm being perfectly honest, at the time, I remember thinking, I'm sacrificing a super interesting job for an interesting job plus some stability. But actually, I was completely wrong. 
nuclear science is as interesting as meteorite science. And every day I'm, I'm reading papers and reports and learning new things. And it's just absolutely blowing my mind on a, on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day. It's, it's brilliant. So um, I'm just thinking about what you've sort of shared, you know, in, in the last part about your passion for science, the creative side, the pioneering side, the interest, your ability to communicate and all the rest of it. And then I'm thinking of you just before your GCSEs in school, having to keep all of that inside because you wanted to, you know, fit in with your mates and not get bullied as the geek or whatever. If you could give yourself some advice at that point in your life, one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I would say that curiosity always serves you well because there's always something that you don't know. And it might just be that thing that leads on to the next great adventure. And I'd also tell him to take all advice with a pinch of salt. <laughs> well, he's soon, soon going to be 17, so he'll know everything. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, Tim, it's been a delight to spend some time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.